Okay, just stop right where you are. Let's pray and then I can chat a little bit as we go. So uh, here we go. It is Epiphany, uh, second Sunday. Christ will be baptized this Sunday, so that'll be nice. Merciful God, loving Father, who governs all things in heaven and on earth and makes everything new through your divine word, transform our sinful nature and all our doings by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we may please you and attain perfect joy. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, welcome back. It's very nice to see you. Thanks for um, getting up early. I know how great it was to be in bed this morning. Uh, you know, all comfortable. But I appreciate this in you very, very much. There's only one story in Scripture. And it's this, that God wants all his children home again. Now that story is told over and over and over again, but really... The only story in Scripture is that, that God wants all his children home again. It can be told in different ways. It can be told as death and resurrection. Uh, it can be told as, as holy baptism. This is where we started, if you remember, that baptism draws you into this life. And this life in the church which orbits Christ is bounded by the Ten Commandments. So all around the outside, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, be happy with what you've got, meet me here on Sunday, I'll take care of you and I'll listen to you. Uh, it's this wonderful notion that the Lord made you and the Lord loves you and he wants you to be happy and he wants you know, your marriages to hang together and he wants uh, you to love your children and he wants your children to respect you. He wants the church to flourish. There's just one story and that it's the story that, that God wants all his children home again. And this is even true for people whom you don't like and perhaps people whom you hate, although I'm going to try to talk you out of that before we're all done because, as I've said to you before, Jesus doesn't have any enemies, so I have no enemies. Jesus has no enemies, so you have no enemies. So if you just bring to mind for a moment the person you detest most in the world... Jesus wants that person home again too. And frankly, you may find yourself sitting next to him at the great banquet in heaven. Because after all, faith agrees with Jesus. And if Jesus loves somebody, you love them too. And this is what the church is meant to be. It's quite simple, although it's very difficult, of course, in application. Now, uh, what goes wrong is that we constantly lust for this life out here, right? We, we can't, we, we saw, it's like the Israelites when they said, oh, if we could just go back to Egypt where we had plenty to eat and everybody was nice to us and there was a regular rhythm to our life. Of course, none of that was ever true. Or we have this notion that in somehow, we talked about this last, last time or the last couple of times, we have this notion that somehow by talking to us, by telling us the Ten Commandments, that God is here to ruin our fun. Right? So we had that quote from Capon where he talked about uh, putting your nose in a cheese slicer. Why don't you sin? It's no fun. It's not good for you. But we have this residual idea that if we were, if we could just steal a little bit or be unfaithful a little bit or just have more or skip church or, 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 we have this notion that somehow God is ruining our fun. And then we begin to disagree, and the more disagreement uh, we have, the farther that takes us from the center. So our life is really very simple. We were dead. Now we're alive. We were outside Christ. Now we are in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And really what we're trying to do at St. John is to learn to live inside the church all together in love the way Christ would want us to live. And not just for us, but to welcome all the other people and to agree with Jesus. That these people have dignity, they have integrity, that they are worthy, that they are loved. And so often in the church, you know, the church becomes a place of sorrow or bitterness or contention or uh, 
trouble. I talked to a, you know, this whole COVID thing has been very, very difficult. Pastors are quitting right and left. I talked to a pastor this week who I said, how's your church? He said, bitterly divided. Each side hates the other and both sides hate me. I thought, all right, welcome to the Holy Ministry. That's fabulous. <laughs> and so, you know, and I know that you are all kind of in different places, but, you know, when people ask kind of what's the strategy here, the strategy here is I know that people think differently and have different ideas and there are smart people on all sides and risk analysis works differently for different people. I know all of that. The strategy, of course, is to keep the wound as small as possible and heal it quickly while being respectful of all kinds of people. It's actually, this is sort of in action trying to see if we can live together and be respectful of each other until the smoke clears. And eventually the smoke always clears. But you know, that's a trick. It's not evidenced in society. It's not always evidenced in the church. This very simple thing that our Lord wants all his children home again, all of his creation, that he loves it all for God so loved the world that he gave, right, his only son for everybody. This is very difficult for us. But uh, it's the only story in scripture, so let's see if we can do it. Now, that sort of thing should always um, make us cognizant of our own sins and sort of bring us to repentance. So I've given you a bunch of things today, uh, maybe not more than normal, but maybe so. I don't always get them handed out. I always bring you this many, but I don't get there. But look at this first one that says, this is how sin feels. Now, you know, there's a couple of kinds of people in the world. There are people <clears throat> like the Pharisee in the temple who says, I'm glad I'm not like other men. I tithe and I pray and I come to church. Okay, you know, there are some people who aren't very aware of their own sinfulness. But most people I bump into are quite the other, that they're quite aware of their sinfulness even if it's pressed down. And on many days, not just bad days, they're quite convinced that if people really knew who they were, nobody would love them or stick around with them. So my sense is you know, if you got up on a Saturday morning to come here, you have a fairly developed conscience and you felt the weight of your own sin. And if nothing else happens today, what I hope will happen is that you realize that despite that, Christ loves you and God understands your struggles and he wants you near. This is the gospel. Christ wants you home. But first, you know, this is how sin feels. So, you know, it's always nice when you bump into people who can uh, say it better than we can. I am alone in the dark, and I am thinking what darkness would be mine if I could see the ruin I wrought in every place I wandered, and if I could not be aware of the one who follows after me. Whom do I love, O God, when I love thee? the great undoer who has torn apart the walls I built against a human heart, the mender who has sewn together the hedges, through which I broke when I went seeking it, the love who follows and forgives me still. Fumbler and fool that I am, with things around me of fragile, make like souls, how I am blessed to hear behind me the footsteps of a savior. I sing to the east, I sing to the west. God is my repairer of fences, turning my paths into rest. So that's where we're going, this, this great difficulty. But it takes a little bit of time to get there. For you who are, grew up on comic books but have now gone to graphic novels, I'm with you, okay? I'm one of yours. Here you are, this is how absolution feels. This came from you. Did this come from you? This came from you. Long ago, far away. Yes, so full credit to, um, this is genius. Who's a good dog? You have dogs? Who's a good dog? Whoa, that's a hell of a question. Who's a good boy? 
Yeah, who among us can truly be said to be good? What is goodness, right? You are. What? Yes, this is amazing. We could just run this at the absolution point tomorrow, but I'm not sure everybody would understand. But, you know, this is what it is to be forgiven. That you're a good boy in spite of yourself. Now, if you're given to uh, much more classical expressions of this thing, I give you Rembrandt. Do you know this? Have you bumped into this in your past? So you have your sense that you've ruined things. And then you have this sense that God loves you and says, you're good. You know, it's the old, it's the old baseball joke where, you know, the pitcher throws, throws a pitch and uh, the batter lets it go by and he waits and he waits. And then finally he says to the umpire, what is it? And the umpire says, it's nothing until I say what it is. Right? That's you. Uh, you are whatever God says you are. So here you have, and this is the story we'll do today, uh, it's frankly the only story you'd need. If you just had one story for the scriptures, this, would, this could be the one. But do you, do you know this? Now you who have played before, you know, no fair cheating. Is there anybody who's seen this for the first time? Have you, do you know this? Have you seen it before? Well, if you take a look at it, um, you know, what's going on there? What do you notice? Can you tell me? Can you just, just tell me what you see? What do you, what do you see there? He does look beat up. So classically beat up, right? Um, nothing on his feet, tattered. Tell me a little bit more about him. How, is his, how does he feel? Next to his, this is prodigal son, of course. How do you, can you sense how he feels? Well, he's on his knees, so. Right. And he does have one shoe off. All peddlers, the other men appear to have hair. They're all men. There's no women. Yes, good. They're all the same skin tone. Good. Very nicely done. How's his, oh, go ahead, keep going. I was going to say, Oh, well, like if he has his hands folded, don't see his arms. Yes. The other guy's arms around him very clearly. And what would that, what would that mean, sort of? So, sort of put his arms like, go ahead. Yeah, good. But the, but, the, but the man on the ground with his kneeling like that, so you can't see his arms. And just like, what do, you, do you read anything into how his head is? Look at his head and how he's sort of, you know. He's completely defenseless. Would you go with that? Right? His arms are in, his head is near, and he's being completely welcomed by, this is his father, he's being completely welcomed by his father. Now, for you art history majors, this is too easy, but there is sort of kind of a classic clue uh, in the hands. Look at the father's hands. Just take a look. What do you, what do you see there? Just kind of look at him. Do you notice anything? Compare the, compare the two hands, right? What do you, what do you notice? His, his left hand, the father's left hand that's on his, on his shoulder, this is a very strong hand, actually a man's hand, right? And the other hand, the fingers are slightly longer, less thick, right? It's actually a, a woman's hand. Isn't this interesting? I just, I should have brought it up for you, but I don't know if you know the, do you know, can you bring to mind the classic um, image of Christ the Pantocrator, uh, Christ the teacher? I should have brought it up. He has one eye that is a law eye, a bit stern. He has one eye that's open that's a gospel eye. Very, very interesting. You have sort of the same thing here in this father. So this father can welcome his child home without diminishing himself. He is what he is, strong and firm and holy if you extend it to the Lord. And yet his affect towards sinners, you, me, other folks, is very gentle and kind. Now having said that, let's, um, let's read the story, which turns out to be you know, one of the greatest stories ever told. 
Anybody, has anybody ever read Thomas Wolfe, Old School, the novel Old School? I'll spoil it for you if you haven't read it. It's been around a while, so. The last three pages of the book are a riff on this. It, I mean, it brings you to tears. It's the most beautiful. Uh, it's the most beautiful thing. Now, you can look this up if you want, but I gave you the text from the, from the Sunday. So let's just, just let's read this a little bit in glosses. This is your story, right? This is your story. This is the only story in Scripture. This is the story of God wants all his children home again. This is the story of death and resurrection. This is the story of God loves you. This is the story of your father would never give up on you. Now there were tax collectors and sinners drawing around to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. This man receives sinners and he eats with them. So one of the things later that will get Jesus crucified is the company he keeps. But of course already the scribes and the Pharisees, the best church people say, there are some people that we'd like to keep outside the circle. Christ is, God is for us but not for them. This notion that some people are in and some people are out, Jesus is going to blow that up. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. Or here's another way you could read this. There was a man who had two sons in the ancient Middle East. The younger son was entitled to not much and maybe nothing at all. So the younger son went to his father and said, drop dead. If you were in the Middle East at this time and you heard this, this would be unconscionable. The younger son who has diminished status goes to his father who is very much vigorous and alive and he says to his father, drop dead. Because the only way the son gets anything at all is if his father dies. And then the most amazing thing happens. The father did. He dropped dead. Or at least he acted like he was dead. And he divided his property between them. It's very interesting. So he's got an older son, the younger son. The younger son says, drop dead. The father says, okay. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey into a far country, you know, like way outside the circle, as far away as he could get. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he, this good Jewish boy, went and hired himself out to a Gentile, one of the citizens in a far country, who sent him off in the field to feed his pigs. So, you know, this is to be as far away from your father and your father's house as you could be, from your father's land, your father's God. You've turned your back on everything, and this is the consequence. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything, which of course is the most anti-gospel thing you can say. The gospel is you're given everything. The anti-gospel would be nobody gave him anything. But when he came to himself, so he had a good think, at least in kind of a normal human way, just kind of above pig level, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. So now already you should say, well, this is the sort of thing we can respect, a bit of calculation, a bit of initiative, you know, a bit of seeing how the dominoes will fall. 
I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So, you know, the, the interpersonal calculation of it couldn't get worse, how could I make it better? I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So let's make a deal, right? I know I screwed up, but um, perhaps I could find a way to fix it. I could make it up to you. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Um, in the ancient world, it seems like the story would be like this. The father's a rich man, house on a hill. Poor houses would line kind of the main road into town. Everybody's watching him. And he sees his son come straggling back, which suggests that he's on perpetual lookout for his boy. Right? I wish he'd come home. And the father runs to his son. In the ancient world, true for Greeks, but also in the Middle East, Romans, old men don't run. That's true for me too. <laughs> that is true, but for different reasons. We got a few bad knees in the crowd, I'm aware. This is more of a moral reason. In the ancient world, old men don't run because when they run, they shame themselves. If you're a dignitary, you don't run, right? If you're in charge, you don't run. So here's a father who never gives up on his child, always looks for his child, and when his child returns, he doesn't care who sees it. In fact, he actually wants them to know the only thing I care about is to be reconciled to my child. Sometimes parents will parent by saying, you're no son of mine. Or, if you loved me, you would never. Or, if you do that, you're no longer my daughter. One should think very carefully about that if one is a Christian because God wants all his children home again. And God is like this father, always on the lookout for those who fled. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, a long way outside the circle, still broken, still wounded, still sinner. The father saw him and felt compassion, this great empathy for the pain that other people are in. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. So the father has lowered himself and begun to elevate his son. He embraced him and he kissed him. This is the initial Middle Eastern way of welcome. If you have Middle Eastern uh, or even European relatives or friends, they kiss you on each cheek as a way of welcoming you and bringing you near, right? And the son said to him, calculatingly, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So far, so good. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And if he kept going, then what's the next thing that he's going to say? Do you remember what was he going to say next? I've sinned against you. 
I'm not worthy to be called your son. And what's he going to say next? You, yeah, hire me. Let me work it off. I've got a plan. We can make a deal. But the father, who knows how horribly wrong that will go, because it's not within the son's power to make it up to him. And it'll just multiply the tension and the sin. But the father stopped his son from making a deal. Stopped him from saying anything at all. Maybe even let him go too far by saying, I'm not a son. Because the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, so that would be one of the father's own robes, and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand. That would be a signet ring or a ring marking him as one of the family who acts with the authority of the father. So the father redresses him as a member of the family, as an equal, if you will. His father brings him near as a representative who's been restored to the home. Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Rich people wore shoes. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. This is the only story in scripture. For this my son was dead and is alive again. This my son was lost and has been found. That's the only story in scripture, death and resurrection. The only story in scripture is that God wants all his children home again. This is the only story that God waits and when he sees, he chases and he humiliates himself to exalt you and me. Christ who did not think equality with God is a thing to be grasped, emptied himself and took the form of a servant and was crucified. The beginning of Philippians. For this my son was dead and is alive again. And you notice that it's the touch, it's the word, it's the action of the father. And you notice that he's still a son. He can't be a servant. He's not a servant. He's blood. He's a son and he'll always be a son. He might be a dead son. He might be a rebellious son. He might just be the worst son that was ever sunned. But he'll always be a son. He can't be other than it is. You're always a child of God. You can't be other than what you are. This is my son, he was dead, now he's alive. This is my son, he was lost, now he's found. This is the center of scripture. This is the only story in scripture. Right, this is the story from Adam and Eve break Eden and the Lord says, we'll find a way to bring you home. It's the story in the very last chapter of scripture where the waters run from the throne of God and the tree of life is on each side and the fruit is used for life and with the leaves come healing. This is the only story that you are lost and then you're found and not just found, you're brought home and made a son again, which is to say you have everything that the father has, not just half of it. And that the greatest moment of God's life is when, you, when you're home for the feast. And so, every Sunday, a little feast at the Eucharist. And in heaven, we say it every week, with angels and archangels and all the company, the feast goes on again. Now, that should be the best news ever. And, you know, it would be nice if the story stopped right there. The trouble, of course, 
is that we're not very good with that. Um, you remember that we, last time we talked about God is love and faith agrees and unfaith disagrees. Um, you know, our, our big problem is that we don't love the people that God loves. Our, our problem is that we just can't find it in us to agree with God. And so the older son shows up um, just to let us know. Now the older son was in the field, working hard, doing what he's meant to do. And he came and he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. That's the sort of thing that should make anybody happy. Right? And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back, this is great, safe and sound. Everything's good. Nothing held back. Everything's forgiven. The breach is healed. Life's good. Let's sing. Let's dance. But he disagreed with his father. He was angry and he refused to come in. Now, if you're really clever, you'll see that the story is going to be told again. Same story twice. So this isn't really the story. It's probably, prodigal son isn't really a good name. It should be really named the prodigal father. Prodigal means you're lavish, right? So it's named prodigal son because he threw his gifts away when he went to you know, spend his inheritance and feed the pig. But really the most prodigal, lavish, exuberant person here is the father. And it's two dead sons. Just watch how the second guy kills himself. So the first guy killed himself by saying, you should drop dead and I'm going on my own. And he did that in front of the whole village and he embarrassed his father. And now the whole village is gathered again. And what does the second son do? He tells his father to drop dead and he embarrasses his father in front of the whole village. He said to him, your brothers come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. It was the father's action. The father kissed him and held him and dressed him and ringed him and shooed him. And now life is beautiful. We're back together again. We're a family. My children are home. But he was angry and he refused to go in. I'd rather live in hell than live in heaven with that guy. His father came out to him, you know, like the father, always looking for lost sons and running toward them. His father came out to him, same story, and begged him. But he answered his father, look, I've been doing good deals with you ever since I've known you. And our relationship is all about doing deals, isn't it? Look, these many years I served you, and I never disobeyed your command. You who have an older brother can understand this, I'm sure. I never disobeyed your command, and you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. All work, no play. I never get anything. I'm the golden child, and I've never been rewarded. You can hear, you've said this yourself. I've said this myself. Right? Gotta go. It's embarrassing just to say it out loud. But when this son of yours, not my brother, your son, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, by the way, that wasn't in the story, but this is how it works, right? The people that we don't like, we have great stories about them, don't we? We imagine all the things they must be up to, and it just gets worse and worse. And it's better if you keep them in your imagination. You keep them in the other room because then the story doesn't get interrupted by reality. This son who devoured 
your, your property with prostitutes, right? When this son of yours comes, you kill the fatted calf. Or you want all your children home again. That's crazy talk. And the father said to his older son, Son, you are always with me. You're always near. You're always mine. You always have all I've got. You're part of the family. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Now, of course, that would include his younger brother. And this is how it is for the Lord, too. He can't betray himself. The Lord is what he is. He's holy. He has standards. He acts in a particular way. He has a strong right hand, even though he has a soft hand that loves you. But God can't be other. And God won't say, um, okay, since you don't like them, they're out. It's just us. More for us. Which is how so many people in the church seem to be. Those people over there, because of their politics or the color of their skin or where they live or what they choose or the things they've done, just us. Party of eight, please. And then, that's not how it works. All that I have is yours. Faith agrees. You're actually going to like this because what happens here in this story is that God says, I love this child. And faith, you say, I love him too. Now you should go with this because tomorrow when you kneel down, you're going to say, tomorrow when you kneel down, it'll go like this. God will say to you, you're a poor, miserable sinner. And you will say, I'm a poor, miserable sinner. You'll agree. And then God will say, you know, as a poor, miserable sinner, you deserve to be damned. And you will say, I'm a poor, miserable sinner, and I deserve to be damned. And then God will say, I love poor, miserable sinners. And then you will say, really? You love me. And God will say, let's play. And you will say, fabulous, amen. That's what happens in absolution. This story is what happens in absolution. And our only trouble with this is when we can't agree. We can't quite believe it. We either believe that we don't have anything that we need to confess, and so we're better than everybody else, or God couldn't possibly forgive me for the horrible things I've done. If you knew me, you wouldn't love me. And so we have everything to confess, and nothing can be forgiven. And neither of those things are true. This is what's true. God tracks you down and loves you up and heals your wounds and counts you always as his child. And you can't be anything else. And God lives for the moment to embrace you. And of course, since faith agrees, since faith means that we see and speak and act as Jesus sees and speaks and acts, it means we love everybody else as thoroughly as we love Christ. Even when it's notoriously difficult, even when it's horribly embarrassing, even when it's very costly, even when it humiliates us, that's what we do. You're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother, not my son, this, your brother. Are you in? Because we're in. We're a family. We're all in it together. Let's go. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. 
It's beautiful. That's the only thing you need to know in Scripture. That's it. You figure that out, everything else can be drawn from this. Sometimes Lutherans get criticized because at the center of all things is Christ the cross and the forgiveness of sins. The thing is, you can pull everything from Christ the cross and the forgiveness of sins. There's nothing you can't get to. It's the place to start. That's the place you start with what is most clear, that God is trying to get you to come back home. And if you and I could figure that out, our lives would be so, so different, right? If we could see ourselves as, um, you know, the sun being held dear, defenseless, and being restored to life, and we could, you know, try to avoid, it's the speculation is this is the older son who looks down with a bit of harshness, if not contempt, on the scene before him. And of course, then the villagers who are watching to see what comes next, right? But if we could be the sort of people who would uh, love the way God loves, it would be good. So here's the big thing then. At the bottom, this is how absolution looks. There's no deals. You can't do any deals with God. Tomorrow when you come, um, you bring everything you've got and you let it all out. You leave it all at the altar, right? I mean, that rail is there so you can dump your junk on the other side. The pastors will clean it up after you go home, okay? Just whatever you've got, you leave it there and you go home without the burden. And you don't make excuses. You notice that he didn't let the son say, you know, I used to be kind of immature and, you know, sassy, but, I, you know, I'm better now. Or, you know, if you'd have suffered the way I suffered under my older brother, you would have... Yeah, no. So there's no deals. And this is harsh, or maybe hard, but true. There's no excuses for your sins. There's no excuses for my sins. I don't have to sin. Jesus loves me, Jesus stays with me, Jesus will never hurt me, and so there's no reason for me to hate or retaliate or break or curse anyone else. Because Jesus will care for me. So I don't, I don't need to sin and I can't make excuses when I do. Of course there are times when I'm stupid, of course there are times when I'm angry, of course there are times when I did things you know, I played the, played the balance and, you know, took the, took the better. Of course, of course. Of course you can explain it, but you can't excuse it. Those are two very different things. And um, then the beautiful thing at the end, which there's no conditions for forgiveness. So sometimes people ask about the unforgivable sin. Uh, you know, the unforgivable sin is the ones that you hold back. So if you've got a hundred tomorrow and you drop a hundred over the rail, those are all forgiven. If you keep one back, you know, the grudge you'd get against your brother who, you know, cheated you out of inheritance or, you know, you have a business partner who betrayed you or a love who left you. Whatever you hold back to fix yourselves, the Lord says, well, uh, okay, but you won't do as well with that as I will. The unforgivable sin is the one that you hold back out of the Lord's reach. So the gospel is, dump them all here tomorrow, and then the Lord will clean them up. And you go home free and clean and new, and you can live like you're part of the family again, right? This is what we do. This is what the church does. And you see, this is why the church has to be so far from bitterness and division and wounding each other. And frankly, you know, this is what we're aiming at here. It's part of the reason you got up early in the cold. Because maybe nobody's ever explained this to you. So the worst thing we can do is take people unexamined who come from a broken church. Because all they do is bring their pathology and reenact it in a new place. And that ruins everything. But if you and I can understand what Jesus is doing, 
which is he's trying to have all his children home again. So no matter what you may think of me or somebody else who wanders in the door or people who don't look like you or poor people or really proud people, you know, whatever their pathology is, and everybody's got something, if you understand that this is the place where everybody comes to confess it and everybody comes to be healed, then you've, you've figured out what's going on, right? Are you doing okay? Questions about any of that? Here's the thing, I'm a pastor, like you start me, I just keep talking, right? I can go right to the buzzer. So, <laughs> any questions about any of that? Are you okay? I know in theory it's not, in theory, we all nod along, but in practice, um, it's, uh, it's kind of difficult. I had a man once from church who came to me and said um, he had a friend dying and he was going to see him for the last time and he'd spent his, you know, his whole life trying to get this guy to join the church, believe in Jesus, right? So he comes to me, and this is, you know, pastors don't always welcome this. He's like, he comes to me and says, you know, I'm going to see him for the last time. He's not going to last another day. What do I say to him? Like, really? Me, what to say to him? I don't know the guy, right? But I gave him this little thing, um, which is the last thing I gave you, which says Lent 5 on the bottom. And this is about the best that I can do, right? It's the one that says no sin, no guilt. Have you got it? From Brennan Manning. Which I find to be, you know, when people are honest, this is sort of how they are, and, and um, if you're honest, this is your cure. Whether taking a shower, jogging on the levee, eating a meal, or praying the scriptures, a vivid recollection of some sin of my past life would flash through my mind. Prodigal son, right? One afternoon, I dove under the covers, trying to hide from myself, I felt unclean, like a moral leopard scarred with sin. That night, I read a passage from a book by Nikos Kazantzakis, Letters to Greco. An old man lies dying. He is filled with grief, remorse, and guilt because of his sinful life. At length, he dies and goes naked and trembling before the Lord for judgment. Jesus has a big bowl of sweet-smelling ointment and washed the man clean of his grime and shame. Then Jesus says, Don't bother me with that stuff anymore. Go over and play. Right? That's it. That's all you need to know. That's the entire church. That's Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the liturgy. That's your interaction with each other. That's your family. That's your last moment on earth. Hey, it's the father to the son. Hey, don't bother me with that stuff anymore. Go over there and play. So you can see how the church is meant to be this place of joy and of healing and pulling people together and without division and bitterness and all pulling in the same direction and trying, trying to live out the gospel here on earth, right? And what's good for you is good for everybody else. So the whole point of the church is to try to convince you that it's good for you, right? And to convince you that it's good for everybody else too. I once was working with a guy who was deeply mired in some habitual sins. You know, time after time we would talk. Like the tenth time we got together, he said, so what you're telling me is my sins just aren't good for me. Like, yeah, what I'm telling you is your sins just aren't good for you. That's, by the way, what I'm telling you too. I'm telling me. 
hey, your sins just aren't good for you. No matter how they seem, no matter how it feels, right? Let Jesus be your guide here. Your sins aren't good for you. You know really clearly from the last few weeks what sins are and what sins aren't. It's really simple, Ten Commandments. Your sins aren't good for you. And you might just leave them be and come in this new life. Come play. There's dancing. There's music. There's people who love you. There's people who love you in spite of yourself. There are people who forgive you. There are people who don't want to be bitter and don't want to be divisive and don't want to hurt you. They want to be like Jesus. They want to love you and be with you and never hurt you. Anyway, that's what we're aiming at. And that's partly why I really kind of beg you to spend time together because I never grew up in a church like this, but this is the church I always wanted to belong to. So, you know, I want you to belong to it too, but I want you to belong to it on Jesus' terms. Not on your terms or not on the terms of the place you left or the place that, you know, how you grew up in your family. I don't want no other terms but you're a sinner and Jesus tracks you down and he embraces you and he loves you and he does that to everybody else too. That's it, right? So anyway, that's what we're aiming at and um, you should be in on it but you should be in it on Jesus' terms. No deals, no excuses. This is, this is what it is and this is going where it's going um, but, but you should be part of it. So, All right, there you go. That's, I mean, I love that story as you can tell but it's, it's the most beautiful thing in scripture. All right, I've kept you even farther than I, I wanted to. I'll tell you what, let's pray. If you want to hang around and chat, we can. I'll stick around with you, but thanks for coming out. We're going to, you know, we've got a few to go, but kind of stick with it. You know, you can bring your Lenten discipline forward a little bit. Try to come on Saturdays if you can. We'll, we'll try to knock this down. There's a lot going on in the church right now, um, but there are really good times coming. And uh, Easter, you know, April 17th, not so far away. So, all right, love you. See you. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.